Well, if we could turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians chapter 14. Oh, I need to get this going here. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. This is why I definitely will need your Bibles. It's pretty small, that print up there. Starting in verse 20, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and he will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are a sign to believe, but for unbelievers. It is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophets, an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks, it should be by two or three at the most. And each in turn, and one, must interpret. But if there's no he silent in the church, and let and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must speak. For you cannot one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are themselves just If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went or has it come to you if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. And do not forbid tongues, but all be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless our time together this morning. Uh, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you as we focus on what uh, the Apostle Paul has to say this morning by your words, Lord, and your commandments, that I may communicate that clearly and that we may walk out of here this morning being renewed and ready for the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can see with 20 verses, there's quite a bit to get through. As I was putting together the sermon, there's one of two ways this can go. This, is, this could either be, I get through this a lot quicker than I imagine, uh, and, and it's a pretty short sermon, or, or maybe we just are a little bit longer today. Um, we'll, we'll see. But it's going to be one or the other. 
from last week, we, uh, we continued with Paul talking about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 14, Paul makes it clear that his desire for spiritual gifts is for the edification of the church. Paul has this corporate focus in mind. And, and we are reminded that this Christian walk isn't just about us. It's about glorifying God and edifying the body of Christ, the church. And so what Paul does now in these last um, verses 20 through 40, the, through the rest of 1 Corinthians 14, is he confirms that his concern about these spiritual gifts, that, that they would not be elevated, that it would not single people out, but instead would be for the entire body of Christ, that the church would be edified and bring glory to God. And what that means then is that the gifts that God gives to his people are to be used in proper order. There's regulations for using gifts in church and in the worship service. And Paul does not want people using their gifts in a way that contributes or creates chaos in the body of Christ. And this is because, as we will see, God is a God of peace and order. He is not a God of chaos, and He is not a God of confusion. Can you turn me down just a little bit? Because I think that might be the quietest I get, so... Um, thanks. So, verse, starting in verse 20, and let me just pull that up here. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, uh, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. The church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and or unbelievers enter, will they not say, um, you are mad? But if all prophesy... And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So, here's what we're going to have to do this morning. With these verses, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to get theological with y'all, alright? We're going to have to dive in deep, but I promise at the end, I'm going to wrap it up in a nice little bow and we're going to have some good application. There's some takeaways here. But we've got to get deep if we're going to understand because now we're getting into Paul really speaking about what is the purpose of tongues. What is the purpose of prophecy? What is the purpose of tongues? And I think for a lot of people, that can be very confusing. I mean, have you ever wondered, with all the different views of tongues that are in the church, what the purpose of them is even for? Well, Paul is going to address that, but he begins with saying, be infants and evil and mature in your minds, right? So he's kind of going back to this metaphor that he uses in chapter 13. Now, in, in chapter 13, it was for the purpose of love, but here he's actually using it in a way that's kind of uh, scolding the Corinthians for their own immaturity. He wants them to be mature in their minds. And remember, um, so what he's saying is, stop thinking like children when it comes to godly things. Become mature in those things. When it comes to evil things, think like children. Now what I think he's saying there is basically, be innocent like a child. 
when it comes to, now I know I said a few weeks ago that children aren't innocent. I stand by that. But it's the idea that we know that um, children don't stay in the same sins as children. Those sins mature and grow and become more and more destructive, correct? Right? So what Paul's saying is, have this innocence about you like a child where you're not maturing in sin. Instead, be maturing in godliness. Be maturing in your thinking and in your mind. And that's really the goal for us as Christians, right? And we remember that from last week, Paul had just contrasted this gift of tongues with, this, uh, with what is from the mind. And he says it's better to use the mind. And so to illustrate this point, Paul then quotes Isaiah 28.11 when he says, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So what are tongues for then? Well, I think what Paul is doing is he's showing us that based on Isaiah 28, we can know what the purpose of tongues is for. In Isaiah 28, we have the prophet Isaiah speaking to Israel and proclaiming to them warnings from God because of their wickedness. They had not been faithful to the covenant with God, and so God was going to be punishing them by handing their nation over to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. But Isaiah, while Israel is still intact, Isaiah is proclaiming the word of God to them, warning them and calling them to repent. But the response from the priests and the prophets in Israel is that they do not accept what Isaiah says. So in Isaiah 28, starting in verse 9, it says, To whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And then our quote from 1 Corinthians, indeed, he will speak to this people through a stammering lip and through foreign tongue. He who said to them, here's the rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward and be broken, snared, and taken captive. So let me unpack this a little bit for us this morning. This idea of order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. We read that in English and that makes no sense. And the reason why it makes no sense is because it's not supposed to. This is the priests and the prophets speaking to Isaiah. And what Isaiah is saying about them is they're accusing Isaiah of not speaking on behalf of the Lord. They're accusing Isaiah of speaking nonsense. In fact, in Hebrew, it's speaking like a child because in Hebrew it rhymes. It's sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav, za'ar shem, za'ar shem. It almost has like a rhythm to it, a cadence, like na na na, you know, like how children... Right, with that cadence? When children do the double dutch and the jump rope, right, they have these rhymes that they do. This is the sort of idea. So in English, it doesn't really transfer over very well because it doesn't rhyme in English and it doesn't really have that same sort of cadence. But this context is that these priests and prophets of Israel are mocking the warnings of Isaiah and they're using this to taunt Isaiah. 
And so God then responds in verse 11, which is what Paul then quotes in 1 Corinthians. And God's response is that, um, that this will be a sign of judgment on Israel, that God will now speak to Israel with a foreign tongue because they have rejected his clear words. And after that, then comes the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so what we see here in Isaiah is that tongues is a sign of judgment on Israel. They were given God's word in Hebrew, and they spoke Hebrew up until the exile. Then at the exile, they lose their temple, they lose their system of worship, and they even lose their language. What changes at this point as Israel is in exile is now the Old Testament is no longer in a central location. Now the Old Testament scrolls are being passed around and translated into Greek. Even the language that the people of Israel, when they're exiled, speak changes. Right When, when Jesus comes on the scene, they're not speaking Hebrew in Israel. They're speaking Aramaic. And the language of the empire was Greek. So the Messiah comes and Israel rejects him. They reject the word of God again. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2 is God gives the apostles the ability to speak foreign tongues to speak to all the earth. And the New Testament is then written not in Hebrew, but in a Gentile language. And it's distributed broadly. And Israel now has to read the New Testament and the words of the apostles in a foreign tongue. So this idea of tongues is actually the beginning, and where do we see tongues begin? We see them begin in Acts chapter 2. It's the beginning of God's judgment on Israel by bringing in the nations in order to make Israel jealous. So this begins with the apostles beginning to speak foreign tongues in Acts chapter 2. And you hear that these God-fearers from all over the Roman Empire who have come in to Israel to worship, so they are God-fearers, but they have different tongues, they speak different languages, and what do they say? They hear the apostles speaking, they say, hey, we're hearing them in our own language. We're not used to hearing it this way. And so what Israel should be recognizing is that God speaking in foreign tongues, his word going out forth from his people in foreign tongues, is just like with with the exile, is a sign of judgment upon Israel and they should repent. But that judgment comes in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Paul is writing before that takes place and so tongues was still a sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. Now, here's the purpose of it, though. The purpose of it was because these foreign tongues was supposed to warn Israel while also evangelizing the nations. That's the point. The point was not just judgment on Israel. The point was to be a warning upon Israel that they would recognize, oh, God's judgment is coming. And then to be evangelizing to the Gentiles as these foreign tongues met these people in their own languages and they were able to hear the word of God plain, like how I would speak in plain English today. This is how they would hear it, right? But this is not what is taking place in Corinth. 
what's happening in Corinth is an abuse of tongues. And so, as Paul says, it really does neither. It just hardens hearts because it creates chaos. Tongues without an interpreter is not part of proper church order. Tongues without an interpreter will just confuse the unbeliever and confuse the ignorant. The interpreter was necessary so that the people could know the message and be convicted. But the result instead, because of the way that they would be abusing the gifts of tongues, Paul's warning them that the result would be not conviction, but actually a hardening of unbelief. As these unbelievers and these ignorant came in and saw the chaos that was taking place within the body of Christ. They wouldn't be able to understand. And why? Because there's no meaning behind the chaos. It doesn't communicate to the mind and therefore does not convict the heart. In contrast, though, Paul says prophecy causes conviction. It is through prophecy that the Word of God reveals the failures of the heart. And the result is that the, is that the people repent and worship God. Paul in verse 25 here also alludes back to Isaiah as well, chapter 45, where he uses the same language as Isaiah uses as the, these wicked Gentile nations because of the prophecy that goes forth would actually turn and repent and bow down and worship and declare that God is among his people because of prophecy. And that's exactly what's taking place here. That's exactly what's taking place in the new covenant. Gentile nations are now turning to the Lord. And so gifts, both these gifts, tongues and prophecy, prophecy, prophecy are for the edification of the corporate gathering, but both need to be regulated. This takes us to verse 26, where Paul then says, well, what is the outcome then? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches." So the purpose, the purpose of gifts, as we're seeing, is um, in the corporate gathering is meant to edify the entire body. And what Paul makes it clear in verses 26 through 33 is that there is a right way to worship and a wrong way to worship. Those who speak in tongues must do so in turn, and there must be an interpreter. If there's no one to interpret, then Paul's command to them is clear. Be quiet. Now, this is interesting 
when we think about people being controlled by the Holy Spirit, people who are controlled by the Holy Spirit can control themselves because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But those who are controlled by demons cannot. So this false idea that the Holy Spirit can make people out of control in uncontrollable laughter, shaking, babbling about in incoherent languages, and creating chaos within the body of Christ and really making a spectacle of the worship service, this is not a minor difference in worship. It is demonic. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So outbursts of uncontrollable emotional experiences, um, trying to draw attention to yourself because you're full of the Spirit, distracting from the Word of God, is unwelcome in the worship service. This order is for the edification of the church and not just for the edification of one or even some. So that's why Paul says, if you need to speak in a foreign language and there's no interpreter in the church, you be quiet. You go ahead and you get alone with God. If you want to speak to him in that language, then that's okay. But not in the corporate gathering where it's going to distract. But Paul regulates prophecy as well. Now, Paul is less concerned about the number of, of prophets here who are prophesying. The, the limit is not so much like with tongues. Instead, the focus is on judgment of what is being prophesied and said. When one exhorts on behalf of God, Paul says, the others are to pass judgment. Well, what judgment? What judgment are the people supposed to pass? They're supposed to be passing judgment on whether or not his prophetic utterances are true. Do they line up with what the prophets in Scripture have said? In the Old Testament, God says that when a man prophesies, if it doesn't come true, then he must be put to death. Deuteronomy 18 says, But if any prophet assumes to speak anything in my name that I have not authorized him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. Now, if you say to yourselves, how can we tell that a message is not from the Lord? Well, whenever a prophet speaks in my name and the prediction is not fulfilled, then I have not spoken it. The prophet has presumed to speak, and so you need not fear him. Right? So that's a pretty grave warning to those who want to speak on behalf of God that they better be accurate. Which makes you wonder what to do with all those prophets who predicted that Trump would win the election or the prophets who keep predicting that the rapture will be next week or next month or this year or next year, and they're always wrong. So how do we judge a prophet today? Well, historically in the church, they would recite the Nicene Creed at the beginning of the service before the sermon. And the reason they would do this is because back then, they did not all have access to their own personal Bibles and quite frankly, being able to even read was such a luxury that the people needed to be able to discern what was false and what was true. And so they would recite this creed as a church that the Orthodox church that everyone who was a believer in Christ held to, 
And if someone came up and preached and it deviated from that, they would know, "Uh uh-uh, that's not right. That's false teaching. That doesn't line up with the teaching of the church. Today, most people don't know the creeds as well, but on the flip side, we have access to Scripture like nobody in history has ever had. Many of us probably have multiple Bibles. We have the benefit of being able to read Scripture, and we should know our Bibles well enough to judge whether a man preaches Scripture or his own false and worldly ideas. Why, God says, because, or why, Paul says, because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is not a directive simply only for the Corinthians, but for all the saints in all the churches of all time. Order in the service, peace within the service, is to be observed regardless of culture or location or time period. And the reason for the seriousness from Paul, as we'll see at the end of our sermon in verses 36 through 40, is that the order in service and the peace within the worship service is a reflection of God's character. God has always cared about how people worship. Now, today, there's a lot of water that just came out. Now, today, people don't really think that God cares all that much anymore. You know, we hear comments like, well, we're under grace, so God accepts all worship. Not true. Or we think that as long as our hearts are in the right place, then God is more open to you worshiping in the ways that you want. Not true. The problem with those statements and the problem with that way of thinking is that our tendency is we like to worship ourselves more than God. And therefore, we are more concerned with worship that pleases us than what brings glory to God. Let me tell you, worship is not about your personal preferences. It's not about your style. And it's certainly not about elevating your gifts as a show for others. This, is, this tends to be a struggle, especially for musical worship. And I think largely that's because of what musical worship has become. It's become in many churches more like a rock concert. And we think that any good singer or any skilled guitarist must then be put on the worship team. Not true. For a lot of people, the temptation is to make it about how good they sound, to make it about a show. The reason that that temptation is so real, by the way, and we know that the proof of that temptation is so real, is because that's largely what musical worship has become. Everyone is just so fixated. I mean, that's one of the main things I hear when people try out churches is, well, the worship made me feel this way. Well, the music was really good. Well, the guitarist and singer were great, and the the experience was amazing. Well, guess what? That doesn't make it good worship. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't can't have different styles of worship. It doesn't mean that there isn't this beauty in seeing the nations come together and and people creating worship and 
different styles and different cultures. I mean, that is beautiful. But it still needs to submit to the authority of God's word. It still needs to submit to the order and regulation of how God wants to be worshipped. He wants peace and order, and he wants to edify the body. And so no worship that glorifies self is ever acceptable to God. Paul then moves on. Click over here. Okay. That was either John or me. In verse 34, he says, The women are to keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. He says, Was it from you, he's saying to the Corinthians, that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? So not only does Paul um, is Paul concerned about regulating the gifts within the worship service, but even uh, the roles regarding men and women within the worship service as well. Um, now, these verses uh, offend a lot of people. Um, I think the tendency uh, in our modern day is a lot of people think Paul was a chauvinist. Um, and so it's hard for people so much that they want to find ways around this text. They want to say things like either it was cultural or it was situational or even saying that these, pers- these verses aren't original to Paul but were added in later. Uh, the problem with that is the way that the Greek text flows is actually the end of verse 33 is paired with what Paul says in verse 34 where he specifically says, um, as in all the churches of the saints. So this is not cultural. This is not situational. This is for all churches of all times, of all cultures. But we don't need to hide from this. We don't need to be embarrassed by this. We don't need to think that Paul is putting women down. What does Paul mean? Well, clearly Paul does not mean all forms of speaking because women were called to participate in the worship service through singing, through prayers, um, especially, you know, it depends on maybe the, uh, the tradition you come from, but there's, there's historically been a lot of participation even in prayers within the worship service of reading and response and things like that. Um, it's not all forms of speaking. What Paul means is men and women have roles to play in the church that are actually to reflect creation. And he alludes to this as well um, in Titus and in 1 Timothy. Men are called to lead the worship service, just like they are called to lead the family, not women. Women are not to preach or exercise authority over men, but they are to participate in the worship service. And we'll talk about that towards the end there, about what that could look like. But Paul says, instead, wives should ask their husbands if they desire to learn. Women tend to get frustrated into taking the lead when they are around weak men. This is part of the curse of the fall. Adam was weak and did not protect his wife Eve or wash her in the commands of God or protect her. 
And so a good indicator of a weak family, a weak church, or even a weak nation is when men give their roles of leadership and protection over to women. So when men abdicate the role that God has given them to be protectors and leaders, and they hand that over, it's really just a reflection of the original sin of man back in the garden. And we see this in our nation today with women pastors and elders in certain churches and certain denominations, but we also see it in our nation. You know, even recently there's been talk of having women be a part of the draft, the military draft, women being involved in combat zones. Now I know maybe some of you may think I'm being chauvinist when I say this, but I will back it up with the word of God, which is that's not the place of women. Women are not called to be protectors in that way. That's the role of a man. And it's the sign of a nation that's turned away from God where men have handed that over. But really, those are just symptoms of a deeper spiritual problem. And what it is really is it's just a pretty good image of of a lot of men today when it comes to spiritual matters. See, the proper order in church is not simply women being silent, but that men, particularly husbands, would step up and lead their families spiritually. See, do you notice what Paul says here? He says that if a woman desires to learn, then she should ask her husband. So what does that imply about the husband? And it implies that he knows his stuff. It implies that men are studied in the word of God, that they are leading their homes spiritually. And if not, the result will probably be a frustrated wife and a weak home. And so it is time for us Christians, especially I'm speaking to the men here, it is time for us Christian men to step up spiritually and lead. We have been so lazy when it comes to the most important things, knowing God and knowing his word. So many of us, we think that being a man is providing financially for the family and, you know, being really good at work and getting promotions and things like that. Guess what? If you're not leading spiritually, you are failing and you need to repent Now, I know that not all men here are married, and I know not not all women here are married. And I would say that if you're a woman who's not married and you desire to learn, which I think what he's implying is that all people should desire to learn, then it would be good to speak to a mature woman in the church about your questions. Because Paul is making it clear that he wants everybody to be knowledgeable about God's word. This leads us then into the last uh, part of our section this morning. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And so here is where Paul actually gives this his, his harshest admonition of all of this conversation about the spiritual gifts. 
He said, look, if you consider yourself filled by the Holy Spirit, or if you consider yourself someone who speaks on behalf of God, you better not deviate from Paul's words because they are directly from God himself. And then Paul gives really this almost terrifying statement. He says, if anyone does not recognize these commands about gifts and the order of worship, then they are not recognized. Now, what does this mean? What it means is to ignore Paul's words here is not a small matter of doctrinal differences. To ignore Paul and these commands and the order of worship is actually to invalidate the worship. A minister who refuses to adhere to what God says here is invalidated in his ministry. A church that refuses to submit to order within worship and they decide they're going to make worship about them and however they want to worship is invalidated as a church. They are not recognized. And there are churches and ministers very popular today, very popular in our culture, but they ignore Paul. Bethel Church, Hillsong, Beth Moore, Rick Warren. These are very popular teachers. These are very popular churches. They put out a lot of very popular music. And I can see some of you, the fact that I named names, your eyes are popping out of your heads. Like how, well, let me tell you, it's because it's serious. And it starts out very subtle. Because wolves start out very subtle. And then over time, people are led astray into thinking that what they're teaching is in accordance with God's word, and it's not. They ignore the proper order of worship. They ignore the roles of leadership and and gender roles that God has established. Their services are about chaos and about self-glorification. And so they are invalidated in their roles as teachers and churches. And more sobering, what Paul says is that not only are they not recognized or should not be recognized by us, but that they will not, if they will not recognize God's word regarding this, then God will not recognize them. So what do we do with all this? All right, like I said, we had to kind of hit some of these things, but I said I'd, I'd wrap it up nicely and I'd give us some takeaways. What do we do with this? Well, first, if you have... Um, I should say, not if, but each and every one of us have been gifted in different ways by God. But our gifts, we must remember, are to glorify God and edify the body of Christ. The way that God has gifted us, naturally and spiritually, is not for our boasting. And it's not about our glorification, and it's not about us And quite frankly, if that's where we are, it would be better for us to remain silent. Instead, God calls us to use our gifts in the right contexts. Having a gift does not give you permission to disregard proper church order. If you you think you have the gift of tongues, good. Good. 
And like Paul says, then you pray to God and you speak with God. But you are not welcome to use it in a way that creates confusion. And if you want to exhort somebody in Christ, then it better be right from God's word and not some feeling that you have. And if you're a woman who is a gifted teacher or a gifted leader, God does have a context for that within the church. It's not in the pulpit and it's not in the marriage, but women have opportunities to teach and lead other women in the church and to teach and lead children and to lead in various aspects of ministry that the church needs for evangelizing or for um, helping out with um, different uh, I don't want to say programs because we're not program based, but different ways of, of just reaching the church and growing the body of Christ. Ministries. I know, I just feel like I said that so many times. I don't only. But this is why we have deaconesses. Right? This is why we have women leading women's Bible study because women can't teach, women can lead in the proper context. The third point of uh, the third takeaway for us is to disregard those who reject this teaching from Paul. Now, the point is not a witch hunt to find where every and any teacher might be wrong in some point of theology. But at the same time, we are as Christians supposed to be wise and discerning. There are a lot of false teachers, there are a lot of false churches, and they come in many forms, and they lead people astray very subtly. And if they reject Paul's words about church order, then we are to reject their teaching and ministries because they are rejected by God. But let me tell you, in order to do this, we first must know the Scriptures ourselves. The last thing is we are called by God to read and study and prayer and meditate on the scriptures, on the word of God, day in and day out, every morning, every evening. God has spoken and the words of these pages hold the same power that called all of creation into existence. We need to be studying God's Word. We need to be humbly submitting ourselves to God's Word. And we need to trust that as God's Word speaks, He will show us the proper order of worship. He will continue to show us the the worship that glorifies Him and, and honors Him. So our, our worship and our gifts... It's about order and peace and glorifying God, not chaos and not glorifying ourselves. Let's pray and then uh, we'll have communion. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that we would be moved by your word this morning, that if we see ourselves using 
our gifts or our ministries for selfish gain, that you would open our hearts to see that, Lord, and that we would repent of that. I pray, Lord, that we would run after you, Lord, spending time in your word and praying and meditating on what you have said so that we would know how we are to glorify you in our lives on earth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your salvation that comes by your sacrifice on the cross for all our sins. We pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We pray this in your name. Amen.